We live in an age of fear, particularly a fear of climate change. One picture summarizes this age for me. It is of a girl holding a sign saying, you'll die of old age, I'll die of climate change. This is the message that the media is drilling into our heads, that climate change is destroying our planet and threatens to kill us all. The language is of an apocalypse. News outlets refer to, quote, the planet's imminent incineration, and analysts suggest that global warming could make humanity extinct in a few decades. Recently, the media has informed us that humanity has just a decade left to rescue the planet, making 2030 the deadline to save civilization. Therefore, we must radically transform every major economy to end fossil fuel use, reduce carbon emissions to zero, and establish a totally renewable basis for all economic activity. Children live in fear and line the streets in protest. Activists are cordoning off cities and airports to raise awareness that the entire population of the planet is facing, quote, slaughter, death, and starvation. Influential books reinforce this understanding. In 2017, journalist David Wallace Wells wrote a lengthy and terrifying description of global warming impacts for New York Magazine. Although the article was generally panned by scientists and exagger- as exaggerated and misleading, he went on to publish the same argument in book form, in The Uninhabitable Earth, which became a bestseller. The book revels in unabashed alarmism. Quote, it is worse, much worse than you think. End quote. Likewise, in his 2019 book, Falter, naturalist Bill McKibben warned that global warming is the greatest threat to human civilization, worse even than nuclear war. It could finish off humanity not with an explosion, but, quote, with the burble of a rising ocean, end quote. A bookshelf would groan under the weight of recent books with deliberately terrifying titles and messages. Field notes from a, from a catastrophe, man-nature and climate change. Storms of My Grandchildren, The Truth About the Coming Climate Catastrophe and Our Last Chance to Save Humanity, The Great Derangement, Climate Change and the Unthinkable, and This is the Way the World Ends, How Droughts and Die-Offs, Heat Waves and Hurricanes Are Converging on America. Media outlets reinforce the extreme language by giving ample space to environmental campaigners and by engaging in their own activism. The New York Times warns that, quote, Across the globe, climate change is happening faster than scientists predicted. The cover of Time magazine tells us, quote, be worried, be very worried. The British newspaper, The Guardian, has gone further, updating its style guidelines so reporters must now use the term climate emergency, climate crisis, or climate breakdown. Global warming should be, quote, global heating. The newspaper's editor believes, climate change just isn't scary enough, arguing that it sounds rather passive and gentle when what scientists are talking about is a catastrophe for humanity, end quote. Unsurprisingly, the result is that most of us are very worried. A 2016 poll found that across countries as diverse as the United Arab Emirates and Denmark, a majority of people believe that the world is getting worse, not better. In the United Kingdom and the United States, two of the most prosperous countries on the planet An astonishing 65% of people are pessimistic about the future. A 2019 poll found that almost half of the world's population believes climate change likely will end the human race. 
In the United States, four of ten people believe global warming will lead to mankind's extinction. There are real consequences to this fear. People are deciding, for instance, not to bring children into the world. One woman told a journalist, quote, I know that humans are hardwired to procreate, but my instinct now is to shield my children from the horrors of the future by not bringing them in the world. End quote. The media reinforced this choice. The nation wants to know, quote, how do you decide to have a baby when climate change is remaking life on Earth? If adults are worried silly, children are terrified. A 2019 Washington Post survey showed that of American children ages 13 to 17, 57% feel afraid about climate change. 52% feel angry and 42% feel guilty. A 2012 academic study of children ages 10 to 12 from three schools in Denver found that 82% expressed fear, sadness, and anger when discussing their feelings about the environment. A majority of the children shared apocalyptic views about the future of the planet. It is telling that for 70% of the children, television news and movies were central to forming their terrified views. Ten-year-old Miguel says about the future, quote, There won't be as many countries anymore because of global warming. Because I hear on, like, the Discovery Channel and Science Channels, like in three years the world might flood from the heat getting too much. These findings, if valid nationwide, suggest that more than 10 million American children are terrified of climate change. As a result of this fear, around the world children are skipping school to protest against global warming. Why attend classes when the world will end soon? Recently, a Danish first grader asked her teacher earnestly, quote, What will we do when the world ends? Where will we go? The rooftops? Parents can find a glut of online instructions and guides with titles like Parenting in a World Hurtling Toward Catastrophe and On Having Kids at the End of the World. And so... Representing her generation's generally held, genuinely held terror, a young girl holds up a sign that says, I'll die of climate change. Hey, all right. This is The Country. It's episode four, originally recorded on August 16th. It's Sunday. I want to win the lottery. And today we're going to be talking about false alarms. I've been reading to you as this uh, cold open began from a new book by Bjorn Lomborg. It's entitled False Alarm. How climate change panic costs us trillions, hurts the poor, and fails to fix the planet. Bjorn Lundberg is the visiting professor at Copenhagen Business School and visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He is the best-selling author of The Skeptical Environmentalists and Cool It. His work is published in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and The Economist. Time has named him one of the most uh, 100 most influential people of the world, and foreign policy has repeatedly called him one of the top 100 global thinkers. The Guardian identified him as one of the 50 people who could save the planet, and he lives in Prague. I wish he was on the podcast today, but alas, uh, that's not to be the case. So I'm going to read a little bit more to you. Hopefully this is helpful and uh, helps you understand where we're coming from. So 
that opening was all about sort of the setup, right? Like the the global warming panic, how it's treated in the media, what that's caused people to believe is true. And so I want to go on a bit. So reading again. The political reaction to the reality of climate change has always been flawed. This too, I have been pointing out for decades. There are, I have argued and continue to argue, smarter ways than our present day approach to tackle global warming. But the conversation around me has changed dramatically in recent years. The rhetoric on climate change has become even more extreme and less more than the actual science. Over the past 20 years, climate scientists have painstakingly increased knowledge about climate change, and we have more and more reliable data than ever before. But at the same time, the rhetoric that comes from commentators in the media has become increasingly irrational. The science shows us that fears of a climate apocalypse are unfounded. Global warming is real, but it is not the end of the world. It is a manageable problem. Yet we now live in a world where almost half the population believes climate change will extinguish humanity. This has profoundly altered the political reality. It makes us double down on poor climate policies. It makes us increasingly ignore all other challenges from pandemics and food shortages to political strife and conflicts or subsume them under the banner of climate change. This singular obsession with climate change means that we are now going from wasting billions of dollars on ineffective policies to wasting trillions. At the same time, we're ignoring even more, ever more of the world's more urgent and much more tractable challenges, and we're scaring kids and adults witless, which is not just factually wrong, but morally reprehensible. If we don't say stop, the current false climate alarm, despite its good intentions, is likely to leave the world much worse off than it could be. That is why I'm writing this book now. We need to dial back on the panic, look at the science, face the economics, and address the issue rationally. How do we fix climate change and how do we prioritize it amid the many other problems afflicting the world? Climate change is real. It is caused predominantly by carbon emissions from humans burning fossil fuels, and we should tackle it intelligently. But to do that, we need to stop exaggerating, stop arguing that it is now or never, and stop thinking climate is the only thing that matters. Many climate campaigners go further than the science supports. They implicitly or even explicitly suggest that exaggeration is acceptable because the cause is so important. After a 2019 UN climate science report led to over-the-top claims by activists, one of the scientists' authors warned against exaggeration. He wrote, We risk turning off the people with extremist talk that is not carefully supported by the science. He is right. But the impact of exaggerated climate change claims goes far deeper. We are being told that we must do everything right away. Conventional wisdom, repeated ad nauseum in the media, is that we have only until 2030 to solve the problems of climate change. This is what science tells us, they say. But this is not what science tells us. It's what politics tells us. This deadline came from politicians asking scientists a very specific and hypothetical question. Basically, What will it take to keep climate change below an almost impossible target? Not surprisingly, the scientists responded that doing so would be almost impossible, and getting anywhere close would require enormous changes to all parts of society by 2030. Stepping from the book a second, this is what I'm talking about, folks. This is manipulation, plain and simple. The politicians smartly ask a loaded question 
to which they know the answer turns uh, all of the debate, the answer itself, oh my gosh, we only have 10 years, into a crisis that then requires radical change to the left. That's how we're being manipulated. That's how climate change is being manipulated politically uh, to engender, you know, things that the progressives, that quite honestly the socialists want to enact, the Green New Deal. And that's what's going on. Back to the book. Imagine a similar discussion on traffic deaths. This is really good, by the way. In the United States, 40,000 people die each year in car crashes. If politicians ask scientists how to limit the number of deaths to an almost impossible target of zero, what good answer would be to set the national speed limit to three miles per hour? Nobody would die. But science is not telling us that we must have a speed limit of three miles per hour. It only informs us that if we want zero dead in traffic accidents, one simple way to achieve that is through a nationwide, heavily enforced three-mile per hour speed limit. Yet, it is a political decision for all of us to make the trade-offs between low speed limits and a connected society. Today, such as our single-minded focus on climate change that many global, regional, and even personal challenges are almost entirely subsumed by climate change. Your house is at risk of flooding, climate change. Your community is at risk of being devastated by a hurricane, climate change. People are starving in the developed world, Climate change. With almost all problems identified as caused by climate, the apparent solution is to drastically reduce carbon dioxide emissions in order to ameliorate climate change. But is this really the best way to help? If you want to help people in the Mississippi floodplains lower their risk of flooding, there are other policies that will help more, faster, cheaper, and more effectively than reducing carbon dioxide emissions. These can include better water management, building taller dikes, and stronger regulations that allow some floodplains to flood so as to avoid or alleviate flooding elsewhere. If you want to help people in the developing world reduce starvation, it is almost tragicomic to focus on cutting carbon dioxide. When access to better crop varieties, more fertilizer, market access, and general opportunities to get out of poverty would help them so much more, faster, and at lower costs. If we insist on invoking climate change on every turn, we will often end up helping the world in one of the least effective ways possible. So that's a bit from uh, Professor Lumborg's book, and I, um, you know, I could probably read the whole thing. It's it's a great book. I highly recommend it. But the you know, at the end of the day, what I'm really trying to say, and I think what he's trying to predict or or put down in his book, is that we are not in imminent danger. Every problem that we have across the country, including major storms, flooding, droughts, uh, problems with uh, ecosystem, most of them are not directly uh, impacted by climate change. There's simple answers to them that will cost us much less, and uh, it's it's a big false alarm. It's a it's a method to exact political change that wouldn't occur otherwise by scaring the populace to death. We're all going to die unless we make radical changes. And, oh, coincidentally, those radical changes are the things I want to enact. So here we go. So that's our first false alarm of the day. The second would be, uh, actually, it's two false alarms that have been raised by Senator Kamala Harris, who is now, our, of course, our Democratic nominee for vice president. Uh, She raised two false alarms, apparently, 
uh, during her campaign to become the presidential nominee. And I'd like to share those two with you. So here is Senator Kamala Harris in the first one. On the issue of race, I couldn't agree more that this is an issue that is still not being talked about truthfully and honestly. I, there is not a black man I know, be he a relative, a friend, or a coworker, who has not been the subject of some form of profiling or discrimination. Growing up, my sister and I had to deal with the neighbor who told us her parents couldn't play with us because, she, because we were black. And I will say also that, that in this campaign, we've also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden, um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful, to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. So I will tell you that on this subject, it cannot be an intellectual debate among Democrats. We have to take it seriously. We have to act swiftly. As Attorney General of California, I was very proud to put in place a, a requirement that all my special agents would wear body cameras and keep those cameras on. Senator Harris, thank you. Vice President Biden, you have been invoked. We are going to give you a chance to respond. Vice President Biden. mischaracterization my position across the board. I did not praise racist. That is not true, number one. Number two, if we want to have this campaign litigated on who supports civil rights and whether I did or not, I'm happy to do that. I was a public defender. I didn't become a prosecutor. I came out and I left a good law firm to become a public defender when, in fact, when, in fact, when, in fact, my city was in flames because of the, the uh, assassination of Dr. King. Number one. Now, number two, as the U.S. As, excuse me, as the uh, uh, Vice President of the United States, I work with a man who, in fact, we worked very hard to see to it we dealt with these issues in a major, major way. The fact is that, in terms of busing, the busing, I never, you would have been able to go to school the same exact way because it was a local decision made by your city council. That's fine. That's one of the things I argued for, that we should not be, we should be breaking down these lines. But so the bottom line here is, look, everything I've done in my career, I ran because of civil rights. I continue to think we have to make fundamental changes in civil rights. And those civil rights, by the way, include not just only African-Americans, but the LGBT community. But they, Vice President Biden, do you agree today, do you agree today that you were wrong to oppose busing in America then? No, do you agree? I did not oppose busing in America. What I opposed is busing ordered by the Department of Education. That's what I opposed. Well, I there did was not a oppose. failure of, of states to, to integrate no, public schools in America. I was part of the, the second class to integrate Berkeley, the, California public schools almost two decades after Brown v. Board of Education. Because your city council made that decision. It was a so local decision. So that's where the federal government must step the, the in. That's why we have the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. That's why we need to pass 
pass the Equality Act. That's why we need to pass the ERA, because That's there it. are moments in history where states fail to preserve the civil rights of I all people. I supported the ERA okay, from the very... So that was a lengthy clip, and I apologize for the audio there. We'll try and get better at... Uh at sharing you those things. But I think that's really important, right? Like, uh, and certainly I don't want to overplay this or overstate this, but Kamala Harris at the beginning of that said, look, you're not a racist uh, Vice President Biden, but then I'm going to talk about how I'm outraged at your racist things that you did. You uh, opposed some, uh, you know, federally mandated busing of integrating schools in the 70s while she was a kid being bused. Uh, and you supported people like Strom Thurmond, who, you know, everyone believes was a, uh, a racist, right? So you're not a racist, but you're associated with racists and with racist policies. So she did everything except call him a racist, probably because she knew that her campaign would may not win and she wanted to keep the door open. But again, uh, a, a false alarm, right? Joe Biden's a, a, a person that supported racist policies and chummed up with racist people and helped them and, and supported them. And all of that goes away now because I'm the vice presidential nominee for Joe Biden. Right. So you'll never hear that spoken again. I am certain uh, in in the coming weeks and months of the of the final stages of the campaign. There's another false alarm that Senator Harris raised. Uh Low these few months ago. Take a listen to this. I believe them, and I I respect um, them being able to tell their story and having the courage to do it. Do you believe that the vice president should enter this race? Oh, I, he's going to have to make that decision for himself. I wouldn't tell him what to do. So that was again uh, Senator Kamala Harris. Uh, in an appearance on April 3rd, 2019, responding to a question about whether she believed the accusers, the sexual harassment, I believe there's even a rape charge, uh, whether she believed the accusers of Joe Biden. And so she says she believes them and she respects them and, and they should be able to tell their story and have the courage to do it. And then she's asked oh, if he should drop out of the race. And she says, basically, that's up to him. So that's just a year ago. And and look, I, I'm not trying to take Kamala Harris to task alone. If you've listened to this podcast, if you listen to anything that uh, uh, I've said about politics on this podcast, you know, this is my um, assumption with every politician. They're all lying. They're all saying whatever it is they think uh, helps them from a political perspective, be it to earn your votes or to win an argument that's going on in terms of legislation, etc. And this is just one more example. So Biden is almost a racist during the debates. Now there's no mention of that, of course, because now she's his uh, running mate. And uh, he's also probably a, a sexual harasser and maybe a rapist. I believe the, his accusers that have accused him of that and now I'm never going to mention it again because, again, I'm his running mate. So this is the way our politics work. And nobody seems to remember except me sometimes. And it goes both ways. I am certainly uh, could spend a lot of time doing this for Trump, but I think most people uh, have heard that enough, right? There's other places where you can get that. So uh, this is uh, the second piece of false alarms here. And... Um, 
reason you shouldn't really believe anything that politicians say. Okay, so moving on to number three. The third false alarm of the week is Florida is ground zero for COVID-19. If you read anything, if you watch anything over the past few weeks, you will be bombarded with stories about the outbreaks in Florida. And certainly cases have did climb in sort of a second wave, if you will. Uh, scientists probably would say it's still part of the first wave. But we definitely in Florida, which is where I live, had uh, you know a very mild initial outbreak of COVID. We locked down. We opened up again in early May, I think it was May 4th, and continued to see really not many cases. During that same time in March and April and May, the Northeast, specifically New York and New Jersey, had huge cases and stunning numbers of deaths. I think at its peak, uh, New York had 800 deaths per day due to COVID. Now, leaving apart uh, or aside the fact that the data for deaths is suspect, quite honestly, I've seen reports and instructions from state health officials that any death that coincides with a positive test for COVID-19 is counted as a COVID-19 death. Meaning if I die of a heart attack, but I had a COVID-19 test yesterday, then my cause of death is COVID-19. But regardless of that, because, you know, maybe that's the right way to go. I don't know. But it doesn't um, seem right to me. So anyway, um, regardless of that, you know, since then, since uh, late May, um, in Florida, the spike started about mid-June, which coincidentally is two weeks after two things. First is the Memorial Day weekend, when I think, uh, quite honestly, people had seen such low infection rates that they probably didn't social distance in the way they should. But let's be honest, that's also the weekend that uh, the George Floyd uh, murder took place. And it was a murder. And um, all of the protests started. And many of them without masks, without social distance, etc. And two weeks after those two events, uh, our cases started to spike. And they went really high. 10,000 a day for a good period of time. But here's the false alarm. And I'm pulling this data directly from a website called Statista, that's Statist A, and they seem to have really good information here. Um, and I'm looking at death rates from coronavirus, COVID-19, in the United States as of August 14th by state. What's the number one? Anyone know? It's New Jersey with 179. Who's number two? New York, 169. So that's 169 per 100,000 people have died in New York of COVID, according to the data. Third, Massachusetts, 128. Fourth, Connecticut, 125. Rhode Island, 96. Then Louisiana, 95. Where the heck is Florida? Well, you'd have to go 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 17, 18th. The Florida death rate is 41 persons per 100,000, or less than one quarter of the deaths in New York and New Jersey. Think about that. That's right, folks. The states that's been all over the news for the past month as, as having managed COVID-19 so horribly has had one quarter of the deaths 
of the state of New York and the state of New Jersey. And how many articles and how many interviews and how many, uh, you know, stories on television have you seen about how great Andrew Cuomo is, how well he managed this crisis and the dearth of leadership in other areas like Florida and Arizona and et cetera. Arizona, they're two, four, six, eight, ten, twelfth in deaths. So, yeah, this is another false alarm. There is no crazy, insane thing going on in Florida. It's been managed very well. Yes, we did have a big spike. It has since passed. And the amount of death that has occurred in Florida per capita is just, it's not even in the same league as what happened in the Northeast. At our peak, we had a, we've had about 200-ish deaths per day. At its peak, New York had 800 with a smaller population. There is simply absolutely no comparison to what happened in New York with coronavirus and the insane amount of deaths, the mismanagement of the entire process uh, that killed 30, over 30,000 people in New York. 170 of 100,000. And it simply hasn't happened here in Florida. We flattened the curve. Once we opened back up again, there was the sum you would expect uh, the cases to increase slightly. As I said, Memorial Day, protests, people being stupid too, uh, have temporarily spiked those cases through June and part of July. They're now coming down again and the deaths never materialized. It's been managed. And just as an aside, uh, to sort of tie these three false alarm stories together, when politics gets involved in science and creates these false alarms, these huge crises that we must manage, uh, they are leveraged by politicians to enrich their cronies. Listen to this from the Chicago Sun-Times. This appeared uh, in their paper on August 14th. McCormick Place hospitals cost to taxpayers, question mark, $1.7 million per patient. Mayor Lori Lightfoot's aides defender push for little-used coronavirus hospital built by Walsh, Walsh Construction as, quote, important insurance policy at a time of immense emergency. Taxpayers spent nearly $66 million fashioning McCormick Place into an emergency coronavirus hospital with 2,750 beds this past spring amid fears that COVID-19 patients would overwhelm hospitals in the Chicago area. Those fears turned out to be unfounded. Just 38 patients were transferred to the sprawling convention center, meaning taxpayers' costs for the makeshift hospital turned out to be more than $1.7 million per patient on average. To complete the McCormick Place project, the authority, a city-state governmental body known as McPeer that runs the convention center and owns Navy Pier, tapped Walsh Construction, a politically connected Chicago company that's built everything from highways to high-rises. That followed a selection process so frenzied that McPeer hired Walsh just hours after receiving proposals from three construction companies, according to interviews and records obtained by the Chicago Sun-Times. It's awful. It's simply awful. How much? $60 million just went out the door for the residents of Chicago for absolutely no reason. And here's where it gets worse. 
an official with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, this is still from the same Chicago Sun-Times article, which hired McPeer to build the facility for which the federal government is covering at least 75% of the cost. So I was wrong. It's not Chicago residents. It's everybody. We all chipped in for this place. Uh, so this official said in an internal email that Power or Pepper, the other two bids for the construction, was the best choice. But that decision was left to McPeer, which picked Walsh, saying its rates were not significantly different than the others, and, quote, that it had the most experience working with the Army Corps and working on emergency projects, even though the Army Corps just said that the other two bids were better. So there you go. Three different false alarms going on right now. We'll all be being made to be very afraid of climate change, COVID-19, and of politicians that have done horrible things until we're on their side, and then we forget about it. So those are the false alarms today in the country. Again, my name's Justin Weller. This has been episode four of the podcast. We really appreciate you listening in. We wish you all the best. Peace out.